The following audio is from The Well. We are a church that is committed to gospel growth, family formation, and missional engagement in Hastings, Nebraska. More information about The Well can be found at www.thewellhastings.com. We hope the message you are about to hear will spur you on to growing in the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be formed as a follower of Jesus, and to be engaged in the mission of Jesus to seek and to save the lost within the yard of hell. So Acts chapter 12, we're going to begin in verse 1, it says this, this is about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. And so Peter was kept in prison. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself. And put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, She did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, They asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not of a man. 
And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Well, this is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, uh, Lord, we thank you for your word. Um, we ask, Father, that you would come and speak to us, that you would help us to just digest and uh, to apply your word to our lives. And Lord, as we think our way through um, this story, um, Lord, I pray that you would um, speak to us about the, uh, the correlation and the connection between what it means to be a praying people as the word of God advances. Make those connections for us and help us to grow. God, we love you in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. So, hey, I just want to ask you a quick question um, as we get ready to dive into this. When you think about your life, believer or unbeliever, when you think about your life, um, where have you observed or noticed um, some of the times where you like, sunk to your knees in prayer just out of absolute desperation? And what was that season like? What were some of the answers to those prayers? Maybe you're still praying some of them. Um, as you think about that rhythm of prayer in your life, and the reason I say that I direct that question to both believers and maybe even unbelievers in the room is that at a base level, I think most of us agree that there is an importance to uh, prayer life. And even if uh, we're in a place where we don't necessarily believe in the Lord, then I, I think that we still um, offer up these silent desires and prayers to someone. I want you to just think about some of those rhythms. Maybe pick out in your mind one of those things you prayed for the most. Maybe God didn't answer the prayer the way you wanted it to. Maybe he did. Just think about some of the desires that that, that like, earnestness in prayer or desperation in prayer maybe um, showed you like the desires of your heart in those moments. What did you want the most? Like, were you, were you just afraid because you couldn't control something? Or maybe you were desperate because you were facing some kind of suffering in your life and it hurt and it scared you. Or maybe there was something that you wanted really bad. I know there's a few of you in the room that really desired to have a baby and spent a long time waiting for that. Some have even lost babies. And in those seasons, what did you pray for the most? And what did that reveal to you about what you were actually desperate for? And maybe even think, as you think about your prayer journey, about the things you don't pray for. You know, I think sometimes in my own prayer journey, as I think about this, I... There's things that I think I stopped praying for because God didn't answer them the way I wanted him to. And so almost out of like a desperation or frustration, I just put that thing aside and discontinued praying because I wasn't getting what I wanted, so to speak. Does that make sense? And so it felt like it was almost fruitless to continue praying for that thing. I remember seasons um, raising our seven children where there's a few of our kids who don't follow the Lord. I remember seasons of just absolute brokenness, you know, falling asleep at night, just bawling our eyes out, wondering how our kids would be. Um, 
I remember seasons of really frustration and like bitterness even in prayer and anger where I would then lay those prayers aside. Like, God, you're not answering it the way I want you to, so we're done. If you and I meet on the street, you're going to crush me. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm just thinking this morning as we were worshiping, just thinking about this text and some of the main focus that we're going to pull out of it as we study it and just thinking that really wanted to zero in on, on prayer. But there's a connection and a correlation to our prayer lives on the one hand and then also our study of God's word on the other. That, so if you talk to any believer that's been a believer for longer than 15 minutes, they should almost be able to tell you, hey, probably two or three most important disciplines in the Christian life to grow spiritually is to read your Bible, pray, and be in church, right? That's traditional um, Christian talk, and it's not wrong, it's right. We need to be in relationship with other believers. And even if we're unbelievers and we're just kind of checking things out and slowly maybe making the journey that way and kind of asking God what, what's going to happen here and so on and so forth, even those three disciplines are still good if you're not even a believer. Like, read the Bible, get God's word in you, Spend time in prayer, talking back to God, and spend time in community with God's people. And, and you'll slowly grow, right? That's kind of the, the promise. There's a lot of other spiritual disciplines, too. Your spiritual discipline of sacrifice and giving generously and serving. And, um, there's other spiritual dis- disciplines of, like, silence and solitude and journaling. The, discipline, the list of disciplines for growing spiritually can go on and on. If you think about it like you're going to the gym and working out and trying to grow physically, um, there's various different routines that you could use to grow. And in the spiritual life, it's no different. We could put together different sets of dis- disciplines. But at the core of all of them, my point being, at the core of all of them, is reading the Bible, <clears throat> reading God's Word, praying, and being a part of God's people. And in some regard, you see all three of these kind of present in the text, even if they're not totally explicit. But you think about the connection. Like, I could just read God's word all day long, and the question is, is it really advancing or increasing at all in me? If I'm not also praying. Because maybe I'm just gathering a bunch of head knowledge so I can win the argument in Walmart. Or maybe I'm just trying to gather a bunch of head knowledge so that I can seem like I'm smart or whatever it may be, or so I can disprove God, right? But, it, but if that discipline is divorced from prayer, then it's kind of useless. Um, or what if I was just a praying man, and that's all I did was pray, and like almost kind of like talk to myself type thing, right? Um, but I never get God's word in me, then what am I really praying? I'm just praying my own wants and needs and desires. And is that really going to be fruitful at the end of the day? And I don't know about you, but in my journey, I've found that uh, over the different seasons, sometimes not all things are hitting on eight cylinders. And I find that I am just maybe studying God's word more and praying less or praying more and studying God's word less and, or maybe disliking to be around God's people, so on and so forth. You can just put together different variations of that. And what does that lead to? It can lead to a kind of a spiritual unhealth inside of us. Whereby I think what happens is we begin to place our expectations on God. You know what I mean? Like, yo, God, I expected you to to come through on this or to do that. And since you didn't, I'm going to hold you at an arm's length and kind of punish you, God, for for not giving me what I wanted. So those are just some of the thoughts that have been rolling around in my head as I studied the text. I hope that it might connect with you on the front end, just kind of get you thinking in that way um, as we 
look at the text. So I come back to that original core, core question that I think I started with, and that original core question was this. Think about your prayer life. Think about your experiences with your prayer life, the things you prayed about, and maybe the correlation or the connection between prayer, reading God's word, and being with God's people. Now look at the text. When you think about the text, you think about the story that we're reading today, you look back just a little bit, right? First, to kind of remember where we've been so that you can kind of get some context to what we're studying and what we're looking at. Over the last few chapters, we've observed how God has literally advanced the gospel beyond the borders of Jerusalem and Samaria. Okay. He, he has literally, over the last few chapters, moved his people with the message of the gospel on their lips into some of the most remote and unlikely places in the known world. And he's primarily done that through persecution and hardship. He has not done that through slick little flowcharts, whiteboards of strategic plans. Not that any of those things are bad. Don't hear me wrong. It's good to be a man of plans or a woman of plans. But that is not primarily how he advanced the gospel. He did it through suffering, persecution, hardship. First thing we saw just a little while back, a couple weeks ago, is he moved the gospel into the Gentile territory through the ministry of Peter to Cornelius in chapter 10, right? You might remember that. And then next, he moves the gospel into what I called last week the Vegas, the Las Vegas of the Middle East. He does that with uh, Barnabas and a bunch of others who are ministering with him, including Saul at some point towards the end of the story. But they're there, they're ministering in what we call the sin city of Antioch, right? So this is what God has been up to in the last couple of chapters. He's advancing the gospel into places that we would never even think that God would go to, let alone most self-respecting Christians, right? And if you look at the verses we're studying today with that in your mind, what is God doing? God is literally moving our attention back to Jerusalem. So if you could look at it from a panoramic view, like if you had a drone flying over and above, you would see the gospel is moving this way on this front. It's advancing like crazy. And then suddenly, from that panoramic view, you see the view kind of pull up and then hover down back on Jerusalem again. So he comes back, moves our attention to Jerusalem. And really, in the text, in the entire scope of the book, for more context, it is... Not the last time that we see Jerusalem come up in the text, but it is one of the last times. Um, it, it's, it, the major focus of the book of Acts moving forward is going to be to the ends of the earth. And so we're going to hear about Jerusalem and see Jerusalem far less moving forward. And so it's like God just moves our attention back to Jerusalem for this final glimpse. And what's the final glimpse meant to show us? That's a question you would ask of the text as you're studying it, if you're going to study this for yourself. What is this final glimpse meant to show us? It's meant to show us God's ongoing care of his church in Jerusalem before he continues the advancement of the gospel to the ends of the earth. It's, it's almost like God saying, yo, I'm advancing the gospel past Jerusalem all the way over there. We're going to come back and I'm going to show you I haven't stopped caring for Jerusalem either. Just so you know, while we're doing this, I'm still caring for them. And the main thrust of what we see back in Jerusalem as the drone kind of makes that hovering overview, 
what we see is basically open hostility to God's people and the message of the gospel. Now, sometimes I think for us in a Western culture like we live in, it is hard for us to wrestle and grasp the significance of this. This open hostility to God's people and the message of the gospel. Somehow when you're studying literature that comes from thousands of years ago and stories like that, and you feel far removed in the, in the seats we're sitting in today, you have to somehow build a bridge to come back over for it to apply to our lives, right? It's not just that we go, oh, wow, that's kind of a cool story of what took place there. Yo, God, go, God, you did a good job. You turned out the bad guy. It's not just that. You have to build a bridge to go, okay, how does that actually connect with us and where we're sitting? I admit, I don't always do a good job of that. I'm sure we all don't always do a good job of that. But when you think that way, you just go, huh, how do you build that bridge? You start thinking of ways that we, as believers, might experience open hostility to ourselves because we belong to God. Open hostility to the message that we proclaim. And I'm sure that each of us has our own stories of ways that we might experience that open hostility. I could stand here and tell you stories, some hair-raising stories in our other ministry of times when we literally thought we were going to die. Um, probably literally almost did. Right? I, I could tell you those stories. And you might be like, I'm probably never going to experience that. <laughs> That's okay, you don't need to. But you don't have to walk in my shoes to experience hostility to the gospel. You could experience that hostility in your workplace, or you could experience that hostility in your marriage, or you could you can experience this kind of hostility in many different places. Hostility towards God's people and to the message of the gospel is absolutely nothing new, right? I mean, from the get-go in the book of Genesis. It's hostility to God and his people in the gospel. Serpent comes, deceiving, seeking to oppress, seeking to devour, seeking to steal, kill, and destroy. Right? And the promise from that point forward is, yo, the seed of the woman later is going to crush the head of the serpent. So, hostility is nothing new. Finds its way all throughout the Bible, and in human experience, we've heard stories over and over and over again of missionaries that have shown up on foreign soil to only be killed the minute they get out of their boat. <coughs> Hostility to the gospel is absolutely nothing new. You might think about it another few different ways too. In your own life, you know, whether it's your own daily fight against sin, you ever think about sin as being like an entity that is hostile towards you because you have the Spirit of God living in you? Or if you're an unbeliever, think about sin being hostile towards you because if the Spirit of God was living in you, the forces of Satan, sin, and death know what kind of a force you would be to be reckoned with. So you think about some of those things in terms of hostility to the gospel. Sin is a primary enemy of ours as well. Or you might think about suffering on this earth when you face physical or emotional or mental sickness. Think about the pain that maybe you've endured if you have been in an abusive relationship or grew up in an abusive home somehow, the pain that you endured at the hands of other humans. One thing is for certain, when you think your way through all those categories, wherever your experience connects to those, the answer here is that wherever God's people are, and wherever those people are that God is pursuing to draw into his family, 
wherever we are at, wherever the message of the gospel is advancing, there's always going to be opposition and hostility. Always. You don't have to wind up in a prison cell like Peter or get killed with a sword like James or face some of the crazy hair-raising experiences that I've faced. But I'm certain that each one of you has faced open hostility towards yourself and towards the gospel. Now, in our story, there's this evil king, right? His name is Herod. And he is absolute, he's a slime ball. And he's a slime ball. And he's absolutely openly hostile to God's people and to the message they're preaching. Now, one little caveat before we jump in, and many of you heard me say this over and over and over again over the years, but you can definitely be certain here that the forces of Satan, sin, and death are actually behind Herod's hostility. Why? Because Ephesians 6 is a foundational passage anytime we think about opposition. So you take this home and you say, man, I have a husband or a wife who is hostile towards me because God saved me. You can say, hey, look, Ephesians 6 teaches me that it's not the husband or wife, it's the forces behind the husband or the wife. Interchange the story however you want. Coworker, boss, other motorcycle group, whatever you want to interchange in there, at the end of the day, our fight is not against flesh and blood. So Ephesians 6 teaches us that and helps us to stay away from that place of going to war with people. Now, we don't always do a good job of that because in the moment, we want to win the fight. So I'm going to beat you with my intellect and show you how you're wrong and you're stupid, right? Or you want to beat them physically, which isn't a good idea either. In our flesh, that's what happens. The reality is if we take up a posture like Jesus in those moments, we would take up a posture that says, hey, look, bro, look, sis, husband, wife, boss, whoever, look, you're wrong, but I don't have to stand here and fight with you over it. I'm just going to pray for you. How, how refreshing would it be if many believers today would just stop the arguing, you know, and trying to prove and just go, hey, uh, you know, I'm going to distance myself and we're going to pray. So you got... Herod's hostility, front and center. And what you can see about Herod is he's definitely not a pansy. Okay? The dude is a formidable, deadly enemy of God and the church. You look at verses 1 through 5, what do you see happening? Verses 1 through 5, Herod literally murders James and arrests Peter. That's what he does. He was a slime ball, scumbag. Guy in a fedora with a really clean suit talks with an Italian accent, walks in and says, hey, I'm going to take you out, and he does. <laughs> the text literally opens in verses 1 through 5 in a literal bloodbath, if you want to like, put an image around it. It's a bloodbath. And then there's this frightening arrest that takes place as this evil king, Herod, violently is persecuting God's people. He literally murders James publicly with a sword, you see this stuff in movies all the time, but I, if you've never seen somebody die in front of you because of a slash with a sword, <coughs> you may not quite understand how absolutely horrific that would be. Literally murders James publicly with a sword. He arrests Peter, and his whole intention there is to have Peter executed as soon as the celebration of the Passover is complete. That's the opening of the story. Okay, this is a very violent movie taking place in front of our eyes. 
And I can imagine how frightening and confusing these events might have been for God's people on that day, right? You think about where we're at in the story, the biblical narrative. At this point in the story, we are not far removed from another Passover a few years previous. Another Passover where their Messiah, Jesus, was murdered too. So you think about that. It seems plausible to me that God's people may have easily had that gruesome image of Jesus being murdered on a cross, high on the hill of Calvary, in full public view, probably had that image in their mind, though they know the tomb was empty three days later. The horror of the cross might have been very front and center in their minds as Herod begins to unleash his bloody attack on them. I was thinking about this this week, and the thought struck me that (coughs) nothing can drive us to our knees quicker than the unleashing of unexpected suffering, persecution, hardship. Wouldn't you agree? The thing that drives us to our knees quick is one when unexpected suffering, persecution, hardship sets in. This is exactly where the church is at, right? This is where they're at at the end of these verses. They're on their knees in prayer amidst their fear and their confusion. So the question is like, how often do you and I literally fall down on our knees in desperation when the forces of Satan, sin, and death rear their ugly heads against us? When was the last time for you? Second thing we notice, um, fascinating part of the passage, right? It's when God sets Peter free. I mean, this is like an answer to prayer that you really didn't expect to see happen. Verses 6 through 11, when you look at it, God shows up in a, a stunningly miraculous way, okay? At the very last moment, according to the text, right? Like just before the sun comes up and execution time hits. Moments, at the very last moment, Herod is preparing to bring Peter out of his jail cell for his public execution. At the very last moment, angel of the Lord shows up in this dazzling display of bright light, shining right into the darkness of Peter's prison cell. And what does he do first? The text tells us he struck Peter on the side. So he'd like walk in and like punch him in the liver or kidney or something like, hey, yo, get up. Interestingly, I just want to mention this now because it came back to my mind. Um, the image for this word struck, when he struck Peter, is the same word and same image used for the angel, probably the same angel, struck Herod at the end of the text. And it's important to make that connection because the exact same word, exact same phraseology. But one struck, one strike was actually the strike that brought freedom. The other strike was the strike that brought death. So just kind of an interesting um, contrast and play on words in the original language for you to think about. Here an angel of the Lord shows up right into the darkness of Peter's prison cell. It strikes Peter on the side. What happens? Peter's chains miraculously fall off, right? 
The chains are gone. I am free. Amazing grace. I don't know. <laughs> chains fall off. And the angel then basically begins to give Peter some instructions. Tells him how to get dressed. Hey, put your underwear on front side forward. You know, get your socks, get your shoes. I mean, you can in some regard literally like, get your cloak, get your shoes. He walks him through that, gets him dressed. They walk through the prison doors. And it's really fascinating when you read it because it kind of seems like they're just walking towards the prison doors and they just open. Locked prison doors. Walking towards them and they just open like the automatic doors at Walmart. Have you ever like, been in that situation where you're walking too fast into the doors at Walmart and they're like prison doors that don't open? <laughs> yeah, you, I, that's just not what happened here walking towards those, they just automatically op open. And the angel then escorts Peter a few blocks away and then disappears. Poof, gone. Leaves Peter there. And Peter kind of wakes up out of his stupor and he's like, yo, what the is going on? My goodness. I thought I was having a dream, like best dream in the world. And then you ever have one of those dreams where it's like the best dream and then you wake up and you're like, oh, well, that sucks. Like, I didn't. <laughs> you know? <laughs> That's, that's not the experience Peter had. The experience Peter had was he woke up and he's like, holy smokes, this is real. <laughs> God's just rescued me, the text says, from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Circle that word, expecting. Think about your expectations when it comes to prayer. And how your expectations influence your prayer life. See, when we go to the Lord in desperate prayer over a frightening or, or disorienting situation, what sometimes happens? If you've got experience in this, you know, right? Like, sometimes God shows up in a way that far exceeds our expectations, right? There are also times when God definitely says no. We've all experienced that. There's definitely times when God says, not now. We've probably experienced that. Prayed for things for a long time, and then suddenly God answers it. It's like, oh, finally, ten years of waiting, Lord, you have an issue with a time thing. He's like, no, you have an issue with a time thing. I live outside of time, yo, you know. So, so you probably experienced those kinds of things. But when God says yes to your cry for help, he typically does it in a way that I think knocks the socks off of everybody, right? Brings full attention to his power and, and his provision. That's what he does. And here's the thing. I think that the intent, I get it, lawyers are like, you can't judge intent. But the intent, okay, behind God's sovereignty in how and when he answers our prayers is this. <coughs> I think his intent into how and when he answers those prayers is based upon his desire to draw us into a relationship of trust that is not dependent on our expectations. You might be like, okay, bro, you, you lost me. I think that what God wants to do is draw us into a relationship of trust that is not dependent upon our expectations. Now, <clears throat> I'm not going to throw expectations out with the bathwater. I'm just going to hone in for a moment on expectations in relation to how we do relationship with God. Okay. So what I mean 
what I mean when I say this, that I think God wants to draw us into a relationship of trust that is not dependent upon our expectations. You might, you might catch what I'm saying in the word dependent. Because if you depend on your expectations, then who are you not depending on? So that's basically what I mean. If you're looking at the text and you think about it, you think about the church, you think about Peter um, for this matter, they did not expect, I told you to circle the word, they did not expect God to show up this way. You have to understand that words in the Bible are super important. They're not just there based out of some happenstance. I think they're there on purpose and that God's word is pure and perfect and real and meaningful. And so when God chose to have the author Luke put this word expectations in there from all the Jewish that the Jewish people were expecting, verse 11, that that word expecting is there for a reason. I think the church expected Peter to be murdered. They just saw James get murdered. They'd seen Jesus get murdered the same way, right? So I think they're expecting that. And when God set Peter free, it was something that was beyond their expectations. So like health, wealth, and prosperity preachers, whom I think are absolute slimeballs and scumbags, right? They will teach you that you should expect things from God and tell God what to give you. I'm like, yo, you're going to get knocked down someday by a big fat bolt of lightning, and I'd like to be on the other side of the world when it happens. Because nobody gets to tell God what to do. I don't get to control God if God's in full control. So the question is, when you think about the church here, and you think about Peter praying, put yourself in their shoes, what do you think they were praying for in the midst of this? I don't necessarily think that they weren't praying for a miracle. Don't hear me wrong. I would pray for a miracle. I'm sure they were. They just weren't expecting it. So I'm certain they were praying for a miracle. I could say that maybe they were praying this, or maybe they were praying that when Peter did die, maybe that he would die honorably with the name of Christ on his lips. That makes some sense. Maybe they're praying for those who would actually see the execution to hear the gospel and trust in Jesus as they observed Peter's faithfulness, even unto death. That's possible. I'm obviously reading something in the text that the text doesn't tell us, but I don't think it's outlandish to make that read. The point here, I think, it seems like the church, here's what I think. I think the church was actually in this bright, shiny moment, they were relating to God without any of the conditions that our expectations usually put on a relationship. Think about that. Like, they knew, okay? I think the church knew, and I think Peter knew that God was going to be faithful to them, even in death, and that God would be faithful to advance the gospel by any means necessary. And so I think their prayers were the kind of, not just communication and babble towards God, please give me what I want, but more of a kind of communing with God in the midst of life, in the midst of the suffering, that absolutely blows the doors off of, surpasses the shallow waters of our human expectations. You really think about it. We're human. We're broken with sin. So aren't our expectations oftentimes so shallow? 
even for the most important desires we have deep down inside. Desire for better friends. Desire for a spouse. Desire to give birth to a baby. These are all deep and important, meaningful. God doesn't just overlook those desires. Yet at the same time, I think sometimes he wants to use those super intense cravings, those intense desires, the things we want so bad, it's all we think about and we can taste it, right? He wants to use those to say, hey, actually, as important as that is to you, let me gently tell you that it's actually really shallow if you got what you wanted because what you really need is fulfilled by communing with me. And maybe... Maybe that's what the church, maybe that's what Peter was doing here. See, the really cool thing is that God actually answered. <laughs> that's the other side of it. That's the really cool thing is God actually answers the prayer in such a way as to completely exceed their expectations. Now think about the joy you get in a relationship with someone where your expectations are exceeded. I love going out and eating steak dinners. Y'all know that. I love it. And I love riding my motorcycle. Y'all know that. And I love riding my motorcycle and eating a steak with my wife. Y'all probably know that. There's a certain level of joy in our relationship when we ride our motorcycles to a fantastic steak restaurant and we get there and I just go, you know what, babe, I, I'm just I, happy to be with you. Doesn't matter how good the steak is. Let me tell you how often this actually happens. Very little. Okay, so I fail at this. <laughs> Because well-cooked steak, the right, it is a joy. Um, but I can go to a steakhouse and be like, you know, this steakhouse always does a good job with their steak. And then they mess it up, and now I'm kind of grumpy about it. And it affects our relationship because my expectations were not met, right? Now, if I walk in with no expectation, and I'm just in relationship with my wife, we've rode the bikes there, and we've drove way too fast. You don't drive, you ride. So I say that too. We get there, and I have no expectations other than just spending some great time with Miss Christie. And the steak comes out, and it is like falling apart in your mouth. It exceeds your expectations. The kind of joy you experience in that is better than when somebody meets your expectations, don't you think? Because otherwise, you know, your Google review is just like, well, yeah, five stars met my expectations. Good, out. <laughs> Or the Google review on one where you're like, I didn't really expect that good of a steak here, but oh my gosh, if you had this, you need to have the steak here. There's a difference. I think that's what's going on in the text here. The church did not expect this to happen. So, so God actually answers this in a way that completely exceeds their expectations. Isn't it great if you just check your expectations at the doorstep when you go into a relationship with God? So when was the last time? The question you experienced the freedom. Catch this. <clears throat> when was the last time you experienced the kind of freedom that comes with not trying to control God with your expectations in prayer? That's a question I think you should let sink in over the course of the next week. Think about that. When was the last time you experienced the freedom of not trying to control God with your expectations in prayer? Spend some time praying about that. Let God speak to you. Notice the third thing that happens in our text. I think this is exactly what I would do in the text, too. If this was me in the story and God like, sets me free from a jail cell, what does Peter do? He interrupts a prayer meeting. I, I would, too. You know, he didn't just, well, I mean, he couldn't. The door was locked. But he didn't just, like, come in, slide into the church pew and get down on his knees. And be like, oh. I mean, that couldn't have happened anyhow. But he interrupts a prayer meeting, right? 
shows up in verses 12 through 17. He's alive and well, right in the middle of this church's prayer meeting. The girl who answers the door, I mean, it's kind of a fascinating way to put the story together. I just, when I think of Dr. Luke putting, writing this thing together and getting the details just right, like, why does he tell us that this little girl answers the door, right? Like, well, I think it ties to the whole beyond expectations theme that I think is in the text, right? Girl answers the door. In her excitement, what does she do? Yo, Peter, come on in. I can't. No, she doesn't even do that. She's so excited. She doesn't even let Peter in the house. <laughs> like, what? And Luke catches it <laughs> and writes it. Like, somehow God is like, yo, Luke, as you're writing this, make sure you put that in there. And Luke's like, I, why? Because I said that's why. I don't, I don't know. And it just captures the the excitement. She's so excited. It's beyond her expectations. And she's so excited. She doesn't even know what to do. So she, she just leaves Peter outside the door. Yo, Peter's alive, y'all. Runs inside. Tells everybody. Right? And again, the church isn't expecting this to happen. They're not expecting to see Peter alive again. They're expecting to have a burial the next day. They think the girl's crazy. You are off your flipping rocker. He's not alive. He's dead. It's probably his ghost. That's the way the conversation goes. At some point, it finally sets in. Peter's alive, you know? Peter actually is alive. The Lord has set him free. He let him in. He comes in. He testifies to God's powerful work. And he also instructs them, hey, go tell everybody else. There is a fascinating thing where he, um, where he says, uh, hey, go tell James. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't do any work on the fact that James is actually dead. Maybe this is a different James he's talking about. So I'm just going to leave that there. Go figure it out. Let me know what you find out. I'd be happy to, to know. I'm sure some of you could probably stand up right now and tell me. Um, go find out. It's, it might be worth the chasing down. He tells him, hey, this is what God did. Now go tell everybody what God did too. You go tell everybody what you just heard and what you just witnessed, what you just saw, what you just experienced. God blowing your expectations. I think um, if we all took some time to write down all the things that we've been praying for, I think we would inevitably have a lot of items on our list that have not found some kind of resolution, right? If you don't have something on your list that has not found some kind of resolution to it, then Maybe you ain't praying about real things. Maybe that's the way to say that. I don't know. Because we do live in a broken life, and not everything on our prayer list is going to get resolved right now, right here. We all struggle under the weight of certain things, right? Sickness, disease, weaknesses, sin, needs. Things you haven't found full victory or satisfaction in. Sometimes we get so focused on those things Right? It's just one side. You get so focused on the things that God has not done. I've kind of talked about this a bit already. The things that have not yet been answered. And sometimes we just flat out miss or diminish the things that God does answer. Or that God is doing. And so maybe part of the lesson we could learn in the text is this. That maybe we should not only go to the Lord in prayer, but maybe also go to the Lord and give thanks maybe also begin to testify more often of the mighty things that we've witnessed him doing, right? Like far too often, I think we can kind of be given over to this mindset and this mentality of a woe is me kind of an attitude rather than a well, wow over him, right? Like woe is me, wow, that's kind of cool, wow over him. 
maybe we need to get more into those shoes. It's more of a glass half full than a glass half empty kind of a mindset. Now, how great would it be? Think about this if you spread this out just from you personally to the church. Like, how great would it be if the church not only communicated our needs and our wants, our longings, our brokenness in prayer, right? And in our testimony to others. Be able to be honest and authentic and genuine. But to also at the same time proclaim the miraculous power of God who, who does do work in exceeding our expectations. I would say this, I think I would press the point a little bit further. If we in this room are not experiencing God exceeding our expectations, then once again, maybe we have an expectation idol in our lives that needs to get torn down and booted out the door. My challenge to us would be to emulate Peter a little bit from the text. Identify some of the ways the Lord has shown up in your life. Testify publicly all the time to the experience of God exceeding your expectations. Do wonders for your relationship with him. I mean, you think about it in, in marriage or in friendship. If, if, if all you ever experience in that relationship is the grumpy, gosh, I can't believe you didn't do the dishes again. You left your clothes on the floor. Goodness, why am I married to you? Right? If that's all you experience in relationship, why am I friends with you? You're always late. It's kind of that grumpy. I mean, what kind of relationship is that? Right? Well, if we learn to have some grace in that stuff, and we, and we treat God the same way, right? If we learn to have some grace and take a look at the things that are exceeding our expectations, imagine the kind of wonders that might do in your relationship you can practically, pragmatically go with others, but man, let's start with God first and just get our relationship right with the Lord. Maybe our relationships with others would kind of flow out of that. It kind of makes sense theologically, doesn't it? I mean, there's a vertical thing going on, then a horizontal thing. My vertical relationship with God is all jacked up, then my horizontal relationships with others are going to be jacked up, right? So quit trying to work on the horizontal ones, get straight in the vertical one, and maybe God will do some miraculous things in the horizontal. You still have some ownership in that. You got to do some work. You don't just get be like, oh, hey, I got my relationship good with you, so you need to fix all them. No, you don't get to do that. That's not going to work. Okay. Here's the thing. People who don't testify, people who don't give glory to the Lord, what do they, what do they wind up doing? They wind up going from bad to worse, right? You've probably experienced that, seen that. We see it in the text too, right? It's the last thing we see. Herod goes from bad to worse. I mean, it's a fascinating story. He literally goes from bad to worse, ultimately gets taken out by an angel of vengeance from the Lord. Same angel, struck him, not struck him for freedom, struck him dead. After Herod learns that Peter has escaped, he, what does he do? He executes the guards, heads over to Caesarea, immediately finds himself in conflict with people in the surrounding communities. Go figure. I mean, Herod's a real winner of a character, right? A murderer. <laughs> of course he's going to find himself in conflict. The dude's always in conflict. He's got issues. I mean, he can't even keep his own people around. He just keeps killing them, too, because they think they did wrong. Those people in the surrounding communities, man, they actually relied heavily on Herod's provision. And uh, so they go over there, they ask for peace, and in the midst of asking for peace, Herod's, like, just getting stroked, right? He's like, wow, look at me. Winds up speaking to them, and in the midst of speaking to them, they worship him as a god. And, of course, Herod, true to his character and his nature, eats up the intention, and instead of glorifying God... Eats it all up, 
angel of the Lord strikes him down with a sickness, ends with him publicly being eaten by worms from the inside out. Ooh, gruesome. Remind me never to cross God again. Okay. I don't want to get eaten by worms. You can't miss the significance of that. Don't miss the significance of the fact that the one who violently murdered God's people, the one who consistently thumbed his nose up at God's people in their message, the one who consistently oppressed them, showed up, got in their faces, murdered them, the one who consistently did that was actually then publicly executed by God in a very humiliating and gruesome fashion. Moral of the story, can't disrespect God and get away with it. Pretty simple. Can't disrespect God and get away with it. Pick on God's people, it's going to hurt you, right? And God is the God of justice. And he really is. This is something that we can take a lot of comfort in, knowing that he's the God of justice. And sometimes, you and I get the privilege of having our expectations completely blown out as he makes a public spectacle out of our enemies and his enemies. And I can tell you that if you're suffering in any way under the weight of oppression that ultimately comes from Satan, sin, and death, even at the hands of another human being, uh, you can rest assured that God will eventually, I like to say this, will eventually choke, slam Satan and all his minions, all of our opponents into the fiery depths of hell in a very public display of his sovereign power. That's going to be a great day. I can't wait for it. It's going to be fun. Conclusion. I'm going to conclude this way. You've seen how God cares for his people, right? All the way to the extent that he not only sets Peter free from his prison cell, but he also takes out his enemies in a gruesome display of power and authority. It's fantastic. It's amazing. All of it's breathtaking when you think about it. But really, it's the final verse that brings it all home. I asked you earlier to think about the connection between your prayer life, what that's looked like, and God's word, right? We've already talked about the community of God going to their knees in prayer, and we've already seen them. And the first thing that Peter does is not to go grab a steak or Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A is probably closed because it was probably a Sunday. Uh, I don't get it. Anyways, I don't like Chick-fil-A. Personal. Personal. I have issues. Anyways, Peter doesn't it. What is it? He, goes to the, he goes to the community of God. He goes down with God's people. So we, we've seen the three pieces we've talked about. God's word, prayer, community of God. And the final verse, though, reminds us, it's not just that God cares for us, okay? and he does. It's not just that God cares for us, but overall, God really is about the advancement of the gospel, the advancement of his word to the ends of the earth. And so when Luke closes out this episode, he attaches this final word about the word of God, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and returning. And he does it in this final little statement, verse 24. It's just like, a, it seems like a throwaway phrase. You could miss it. The word of God increased and multiplied. Oh, wow, cool. No, the word of God increased and multiplied. Think about this. Like, it really doesn't matter when you or I die because death merely is an usher into God's eternal presence. So that doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter who persecutes us because they're going to eventually get what's coming to them. So that really doesn't matter in the spectrum of time, space, continuum, and all that. What really matters is the advancement of the gospel because the gospel is the message of salvation for all who turn to Jesus. 
The life we live here on this earth is merely a whisper in the wind. It's merely the blink of an eye in this small moment of the span of eternity. All of our experiences, all the things that we do and done and been done to, it's just gone like that, really, in light of eternity. What really matters is whether or not the message of the gospel has taken root in our lives and whether or not it is increasing and multiplying in us and through us, right? And so the primary way, I think, after asking all those questions of you guys, I think the primary way that the gospel actually increases and multiplies is through prayer. This is the point of the text. And a good, solid, healthy prayer life, I think, has to be divorced from our expectations. I think the enemy of a healthy prayer life is our expectations. Truly resting in the presence of God, when you think about that, you're going to find rest amidst the hardship, amidst the difficulties, amidst the suffering, amidst the disappointments. You think about that, right? I think it begins understanding that the bloody cross and the empty tomb and the promise of heaven, they're all centered on the, the person, the work of Jesus, right? And in our faith in Him, we come through a right relationship with God. And the way that we stay in right relationship with Him is by removing our expectations. Saying, hey God, there's a lot of things I want, but I don't expect you to do that. I'm going to come to you. I'm going to trust you. I want to commune in your presence because that, that is more priceless than silver or gold. And what happens is I think what God does is he starts to give you the desires of your heart. If the desires of your heart are just to get God to be like the coin machine to give you what you want, you're going to be left wanting. But if the desire of your heart is to resist the expectation, say, hey, the only thing I want, God, is just you. I just want you. Then I think he'll give you the desire of your heart then. And I think you'll move far past, far past, down into the depths below the shallow waters of your expectations, your wants. And you'll wind up in a place where you'll walk with God in a way that he'll continuously blow the doors off of what you thought was or was not possible. And in the midst of that, you know what happens? The word of God increases and multiplies in you. Amen? Father, thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness to us, that we might have your word this morning, that we might study and know that you are the God who does blow the doors off our expectations. I pray, Father, in these moments as we close, that you would turn our attention to the foot of a bloody cross, turn our attention to the doorway of an empty tomb, turn our attention to the hope we have in the promise of heaven. Do a work in our hearts and our minds. Or if there's any here that have yet to trust fully in you, to repent of sin, to come to you and say, man, I don't have anything except for this big old backpack full of sin to give you. So I'm going to give that to you and take your righteousness and trust in you to save me. Pray, God, that you would do some of that work this morning, too, among us. God, we love you. In Jesus' name, everybody said